Hi, I'm Clement Liu. Welcome to the second season of Just Sustainability. In the previous episode of Just Sustainability, we met Dr. Julian Adgerman and learned about how he thinks equity and sustainability are intertwined and about how organizations and institutions might work towards being better at including members of marginalized communities. In this episode, we pick up where we left off with me asking Julian about a personal concern that I often have, namely that as I've become more established in my career, I worry that I have become increasingly alienated from the communities that I grew up in. Here's what he had to say about that concern and how he thinks professionals and scholars might support communities even if we don't represent them by centering belonging in our work. I have a question that might be a little unrelated and I'm not sure if you have much to say about it, but I'll ask it anyhow. So I think you're exactly right that we do need to be more conscientious about working towards social justice and equity. And you had mentioned that we need to develop greater cultural competency. And so that's the question I want to ask about, right? So I, it seems to me to be more effective in promoting equity and justice and to be better at being culturally competent, to be better at developing the sort of partnerships that lead to pipelines to, to help diversify uh, various fields requires folks to, to develop uh, a capacity to, to better understand others, to be better able to relate to folks that are different from them, right? That, that, how do you develop that cultural competency? So, right. So even for, you know, folks who are, are people of color, like, uh, I'll speak just from my own, my own uh, experience, right. I'm a person of color who grew up in a, a working class community where there were many people of color, but um, as an adult, right. I, I'm no longer working class. Uh, I'm insulated from some of the, the things that other people of color uh, have to do with because of, you know, economic privilege or privilege that comes from like uh, my job working in higher education. Uh, right. So given that for a lot of us who work in the area, who care about this stuff, we be, we to some degree become alienated from uh, right the communities we might've come from. How, how, how do we continue to, you know, to, to, to fully appreciate and to, to be a representative and to be good partners. Well, a great point, Clement, and I, uh, I, I think um, you know a lot of people would feel the same way, but um, but I don't. Okay. <laughs> the, more, the, more, <laughs> the more power I have, uh, the more I want to use that power to to speak out right. and to. Uh, I mean, you know, I don't, being, being, you know, black European, I don't represent anybody in, in a sense in the United States. I mean, there are very few of those black Europeans in the United States. Um, but what I can do is use my vast experience and I can use my communication skills and my status to... Um, identify with those who are struggling i mean it's it's part of why i'm in urban planning i i wouldn't become an academic just to sort of live in my own brain i i live uh in the day-to-day and um one one thing that i'm thinking about a lot at the moment is 
the the tension between what I call belonging and becoming. Mm-hmm. Let me explain. As urban planners, as environmental policy makers, as sustainability professionals, we're always thinking about what a place can become. Mm-hmm. It can become more sustainable, more resilient, more sharing. It can become more uh, healthy. But what about who gets to belong? Hmm. Who gets to belong? Who do we give recognition to? Who do we recognize as belonging in the city? Who do we give the right of the city to? Who do we... We're excluding more and more people from cities, towns, etc., through uh, homelessness, through all kinds of uh, ways of pushing people out of the decision-making process. So... Hmm. My worry is that what our cities can become is going to be defined and decided by an increasingly narrow group of people who we grant the notion of belonging to. So I want to see, and, and I speak mainly from a city point of view because that's what I, what I study and research, mm-hmm. um, I want to see us opening up this notion of belonging, that as urban professionals we need to deepen our uh, quest to get participation from a wider range of people. We need to use deep ethnographies of communities to begin to understand who and what and how communities want to be involved. That requires much greater um, cultural competency. It also requires us to visit some of the often um, dormant human uh, attributes we have, like empathy, and altruism, which we're now seeing in these coronavirus days, we are seeing massive acts of kindness and empathy and altruism. These are basic human characteristics that have been buried in our aggressively individualistic culture, and we need to reclaim them. Um, and so, you know, I say to you, Clement, as a, as, as a young academic, um, you know, don't lose the the roots, um, don't lose the dreams of those communities that, that you feel representative of simply because you've made uh, a transition into the perhaps upper middle class. I, 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 it, I, I couldn't do that. I, uh, you know, it's not who I am. And again, I'm not accusing you here of, mm. of doing it willfully. Um, I, I know exactly what you mean. You know, in many ways, I could go to a neighborhood in Boston five miles away from where I am and I look like everybody else there but as soon as I open my mouth I would be seen as different I would be seen perhaps as one of them because I got an English accent and I'm a professor but that doesn't stop me um, from really understanding that we need to confer this notion of belonging we need to help people rejoin society rather than deepen inequality by pushing them further to the margins and this this applies you know to to all people uh, you push people further to the margins they go away they go down the rabbit holes and they become more isolated and more frightened Julian's thoughts about the importance of belonging really resonate with me, and so I asked him about his thoughts about how to practically improve the sense of belonging for students of color in higher education, which is another topic that I personally think about quite often. Julian's answer really highlights the importance of 
being intentional in regards to hiring and retention, to ensure that students see themselves represented in senior faculty and institutional leadership. When you're thinking about spaces, how do you think about promoting belonging when you're thinking about spaces, right? So I'm asking this, about like, you know, from thinking about like higher ed um, and working at a campus that is a, um, that, that's a native serving institution that has a really large population of people of color, but I think hasn't quite gotten it completely right about being a place where people always feel like they belong. And so I'm asking, you know, for practical tips on how to make spaces uh, more welcoming where people feel a greater sense of belonging? Well, this is a really interesting and great question, Clement. Um, you know, a lot of my work is on public space and the importance right. of public spaces, but I'm going to focus for now on your direct question on, um, you know, spaces like higher education spaces. I mean, you know, I have to express some frustration here in the sense that right. you know, potentially higher education universities are these, in a sense, great liberal institutions founded on the principles of um, of liberalism, and they are places where, you know, in theory, we should be much freer, um, and we should be much more accepting of difference and diversity. And the need for equity and social justice. And my institution, by and large, is. I'm very proud, and that's why I've spent most of my career and potentially will spend the rest of my career at Tufts. Um, but, you know, let me ask you about your, your institution. You say there's a lot of diversity. It's a, an indigenous-serving institution. Um, a lot of uh, people of colour on your campus. What about the distribution of colour in terms of seniority? Yeah, so, I mean, I think that's one where there isn't, right? So I feel like, let me think, of the sort of the more senior administrators, uh, they are predominantly white. There are a few people of color, but um, the proportion isn't representative of the proportion, of, like for our students, for example, where I think upwards of 30 or 40% are people of color. Um, uh, even, I think even amongst the faculty, uh, it's not, not nowhere near 30 or 40%. Yeah. So, you know, look, let, let, yeah. So, you know, there's faculty um, and then, and, and, and faculty isn't just a flat, um, non-hierarchical concept. Mm -hmm. You know, you're an assistant professor, there are associates, there are full professors. You probably have some system uh, at, at uh, your university of distinguished or university professors. Let's look at, the diminution of people of color as you go up those ranks. How many full professors of color are there at your institution? Do you know? Uh, I don't know for sure. I can think of three. Right. Okay. Yeah, three of uh, I think approximately a hundred. Yeah, that's 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 a, a very low percentage. Yeah. Three out of a hundred, when thirty to forty percent of your kids are of color yeah um yeah and then similarly probably in the administration there are probably very few um student uh, people of color in the administration i mean look that's you know this is essentially the, the problem we face representation is really important it's funny because i was talking to one of my african-american uh, uh, master's students and i said you know uh, it's just occurred to me I went through my whole career and I never had 
a faculty of colour through my bachelor's, my postgrad teaching degree, my master's, my PhD. I never had uh, a, a faculty of colour. This, and I started in 1977, and I uh, finished my PhD in 1996. I wasn't in higher education all the time. I was working in between. And, but, but the point I'm making, though, is that I, I never had that. Um, but I had some really good quality mentors, male and female, uh, but they were they were all white. Um, I, I don't know. Maybe I had some sort of ridiculous self confidence, um, <laughs> which, which enabled me to to get to where I wanted to be, and, and I am where I want to be. Um, but for some people, it, it just isn't the case. And seeing people who look like them in in um, senior roles, in well respected roles. Um, has a tremendous influence, tremendous influence. And this is this is why I, I want to see more, you know, senior faculty of colour. Um, I really do. Uh, in fact, in Britain, it's interesting. There's a, you know, there's a, a, a sort of hashtag going around. And the hashtag is, why isn't my professor black? Uh, <laughs> and and, and in, in many ways, actually, so some of the students that have originated this are now looking at, people like myself and the hundreds of other faculty of color who are now in Canada, in Australia, in the United States are anywhere but Britain. And so there's a, a slight anger from these students that we are now somewhere else. They want representative um, education. They want to see people who look like them teaching them. So it really is about I think bringing in and getting, um, you know, faculty uh, who, who are diverse uh, and different. But it's not just about getting them, it's about retaining them. Um, it's about understanding the challenges and pressures that faculty of colour face, um, especially female faculty of colour. Um, for instance, you know, I'll, I'll give you... a direct example um uh, a university 10 years ago tried to hire me i would have been the only um tenured senior faculty of color and my worry was i would become the um the go-to mentor not just for my own assigned advisees but for all of these other students who were thirsty for a faculty another fa well sorry the first faculty of color i would have been overloaded right um and you know uh, and maybe i sh should have suggested to them um okay i'll i'll take this job if you employ three other senior faculty of color and i'll help you employ them mm -hmm. so you know in in many ways as senior faculties of uh, senior faculty of color we almost end up being pioneers and in being pioneers, we can get overloaded with advising, unofficial advising of students who just want to come and talk to somebody who they feel might understand them a little better or understand their experience a little better than uh, the assigned faculty member. It's, a, it's complex, uh, Clement, and, and, you know, and I, I do respect your institution. I, I know it's done a lot, but... This is this is not a destination, it's a journey. This is a journey, and 
we may never get to the uh, mythical end point, but it's a journey we need to to take. We've arrived at the point where my conversation with Julian Adjaman was starting to wrap up. So like I've done previously, I want to conclude our conversation by inviting Julian to take the reins and introduce a topic that he wanted to talk about but I hadn't previously mentioned. Here's what he had to say. Yeah, just, you know, just a, a final point. Uh, I think I mentioned uh, earlier on that, you know, just sustainability is, is in many ways, I see it as a, a platform for my work. Everything that I do, whether it's been my books on uh, critiques of urban planning and design in the book called Incomplete Streets, whether it's on food justice, whether it's on the sharing economy, sharing cities, smart cities, um, whether it's on food trucks, um, whether it's on, you know, my latest book, which is just about to come out, on immigrants and food. Just sustainability is the platform, the lens, or the set of lenses that I use. And one thing that I really like is when I get researchers, young PhDs, um, or older PhDs, um, uh, you know, assistant professors who are starting to use the framework of just sustainabilities to really move the work that I've been doing on. And it's that's one of the great things about um, academia is that, that we can we can share concepts. And I'm really happy when somebody comes to me with a critique and says, hey, why didn't you think of this? Or why didn't you do it this way? That's what, you know, what is exciting, I think, about academia. And there's a, a new book just come out in one of my series, one of my book series with Z Books from London. And it's called Urban Sustainability and Justice, Just Sustainabilities and Environmental Planning. And they take the Just Sustainabilities concept and they look at a database that they've collected of 400 cities around the world, trying to see whether just sustainabilities principles are being uh, followed by cities and in some cases they are um, and in some cases they aren't and it differs in different parts of the world in places like the caribbean and parts of africa um, issues of social justice and equity within sustainability are more important in certain places it's more the environmental aspects living within the limits of supporting ecosystems so it's the first empirical collection of of cases of just sustainabilities really so yeah i think it's just really important that um, people use the idea of just sustainabilities to look at um, urban environmental planning and really start to think about how our cities can close the gap between rich and poor and can look at um, really how issues of social justice and equity are fundamentally important to future sustainable development. And final point, in this, I'm very pleased that the, um, the UN's Sustainable Development Goals really do recognise and are based on a basis of just sustainabilities. They are a tremendous improvement on 20 or 30 years ago, really, where environment was the preeminent uh, case in terms of sustainability, the, the sustainable development goals, the urban goal, the gender equity goal, all of the goals in many ways are grounded in the need for a greater appreciation of social justice and equity. That sounds really cool. Uh, thank you. Uh, 
So just one quick question. So what are the most justly sustainable cities? <laughs> that's, that's a great question. Um, well, cities that are, I mean, no, no city is right. totally socially just and sustainable, and perhaps they never will be. But ones that are really moving towards social justice and equity, um, Medellin, Colombia, um, that changed... I mean, if there was ever an urban social transformation, it would be Medellin, social, um, Medellin, Colombia. In the 80s, it was the um, cocaine capital of the world. Um, the uh, drug cartels were active there. Today, they practice something called social urbanism. And social urbanism is a, uh, a philosophy that really came out of the, the Medellin Academy. And it expresses the need to invest um, money in especially poor neighborhoods first. So Medellin is built around a series of valleys. The wealthier people live uh, in the valleys and the, the communas, the, uh, the favelas, are on the hillsides. And the city has done a tremendous job, largely with money from its own public utility, in, um, in developing community facilities, uh, developing the arts, developing education, developing libraries, developing broadband access, developing um, an amazing metro cable system of cable cars that go up into the favelas from the downtown area. They've done participatory budgeting, participatory planning. Um, and again, all of this is funded by the um, the, the, the city's own public utility. City of Amsterdam has been doing <clears throat> a lot of work on the linkages between smart and sharing cities. Um, and Amsterdam has traditionally been a very tolerant city uh, in, in many ways, tolerant to immigrants, tolerant to uh, you know, soft drug use and, and things. So places like um, you know, Medellin, Amsterdam, uh, Copenhagen, um, these are all cities that are really starting to look at the civic realm. And, you know, I'll leave you with one thought. Um, these cities don't do what they do in a vacuum. There is usually, in fact, 99% of the time, a visionary philosophy, an idea. So whether it's um, the idea of social urbanism in, um, in, in Medellin, Colombia, or in Belo Horizonte, Brazil, the, the vision is food security. Um, and one of the early mayors in the 90, early 1990s who came from a, a background of poverty and hunger, he developed the world's most advanced food security system, which is still in place today, despite there have been, you know, having been lots of different administrations. Uh, nobody has picked it apart because it works. And basically, in Belo Horizonte, what happens is the city fixes the price of certain foodstuffs that have to be sold to people on benefits by the private sector sellers. The private sector re retailers can sell at whatever price they want to those who have money, but the city fixes the price of certain foodstuffs. They've dramatically cut hunger. In fact, Francis Moore Lappe, the uh, the, the food writer called it the city that abolished hunger. How did it do this? It started off with social justice, the right to food, and food with dignity. And these, these cities, Medellin, Belo Horizonte, Curitiba, all of these cities around the world, 
all of them started with the idea of access, equity, social justice, right to food. You don't get to social justice uh, by any other means than being mindful and intentional about it. We're at the end of another episode of Just Sustainability. To review, we listened to a conversation between Julian Adjaman and I about the concept of just sustainabilities, the importance of belonging, and how intending to representation and leadership helps to create spaces where marginalized folks feel that they belong. This also brings us to the end of another season of Just Sustainability. I'm currently recording new conversations and cutting existing ones into episodes for the podcast, so please join me in the fall of 2022 for Season 3. Also, I expect that in the interim, Amanda will likely have new episodes of our special series on community-engaged philosophy, so please check in periodically for those. Thank you for listening to Just Sustainability. If you've enjoyed what you heard, please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review. Just Sustainability is recorded with the support of the Institute in the Environment at the University of Minnesota. In particular, I want to thank Peter Levin and Beth Mercer-Taylor for all their help with this show. All the music on Just Sustainability is composed and recorded by Clifton Nesseth, and all the artwork was created by Kristen Nesseth. Thank you again for listening.